Let's open our Bibles to Haggai, Haggai chapter 2. We'll finish the book of Haggai today, or tonight, and then uh, the next two weeks, St. Paul of uh, Missouri City is, is going to, he's going to do uh, two or three worker lessons from the Rabbinical Altar, which is a very neglected area of scripture, but it would really, kind of really fit into what we're doing here with regards to
everything wrong with having an icon and then neglecting the simple because the simple is essential for worship in this place. So that's the sermon. The second sermon, which was given a little bit over a month later, in that sermon, Haggai calls upon the people to continue building, knowing that the Lord will give them. As we said this morning, you know, this, this idea of when God says, I am with you, it's an extremely important theological idea. God works with people. And so what the prophet is saying, God's on your side. There's going to be a special empowerment for this, a, an expect, a special blessing over and above just being a Jew, over and above the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. God is with them. And so this should have motivated them because they, they knew their Bible, I'm sure, and they knew when God, when the text said God's with you, something really special was going to happen. It happened with Abraham, it happened with the, the other patriarchs, it happened with Joseph too, I believe, and, and, and others that, that had this special empowerment. So these, these words may not mean a lot to us. It means more than just our prayer for them. It's a special blessing that was going to be there um, because God was in favor of them building this temple. And, and although the second temple would not be the architectural wonder, that Solomon's temple would have been, and Solomon's temple was, it's still going to be a magnificent structure for us. One little side note I mentioned it, but I think I missed it kind of quickly. I want to send that by and make sure you remember this part. Um, Cyrus, king of Persia, had given them land to rebuild the temple, and they didn't build it in time. So that kind of implies, though, that maybe they didn't use it in the way they were supposed to use it. Keep that in mind as we go through the third of the sermons, the third of four that we'll study tonight. They, they probably didn't do what they were supposed to do. So again, we're, tonight we'll do 34. The third sermon, which was given two months after the second sermon, so this is fairly rapid stresses that sin does carry with it consequences. Sin carries with it consequences, but faithful obedience will be there. These people had sin. They started off well, they had sin. And even at the time that Haggai is writing, God's disciplining them in a few, in an agricultural way, towards the conception. It doesn't mean they're not going to be blessed in the future, but sometimes we do something. We, we may even confess it. We may even repent from it. But that something, whatever it is, is so destructive to ourselves and maybe to those around us that God disciplines us. Even though we've confessed it, he's still disciplined. He's still thankful. And that thanking may go on and, and overlap with the period of time that we're actually walking with God here. And that's what's happening to these people. They had messed up. They had failed. They had sinned. They were given thanks, for, particularly from the, in an agricultural downturn, agricultural depression in the of everything back then. They were getting thanked for that, and that thank, the pain from that thanking was going up, up until the present time, even though at the present time they were walking in fellowship with God. So sometimes that happens. And when it happens, it doesn't mean that you're not doing the right thing. It just means that God's trying to give his best to your people. And it's actually something very good. Because there are certain things that we can do that if God didn't get our attention, as a believer, if he didn't get our attention, and we continue down that path, we get our painful results most of our struggles in this world. So there are certain things that God is trying to get out that door and tell us about. And you, you see you see bigger things. Um, adultery. Now, people will, will argue sometimes, well, you know, adultery is no more of a sin than maligning somebody. 
Someone had said, adult, adultery is no more of a sin than the people who are maligning the person who committed the adultery. Well, okay, I, I see your point. In terms of a, a pure martyrology standpoint and the whole holiness of God thing, sin is sin and all things are holy to God. But there are certain sins that we can commit that are very destructive, not only to ourselves, but to those around us. And I'm not sure. And so you see, when David commits this adultery and then he's murdered, you see the intense punishment that he so yes, sin is sin, no matter what the sin is, it's still equally offensive to the holiness of God, but God can just get us more for certain sins than others, and we can go So this, he's going to hit this more than others, certain sins more than others, because of the destructive nature of it. He's, he's in the process of disciplining the Israelites as we speak in the, in the third sermon. And again, he's going to talk about blessing. So sometimes we have discipline that continues on, even though we're walking in faith. In order to get our attention to what others are doing. What others are doing. That's, that's everything God's doing during discipline. He disciplines the believers to correct them, not, not any teaching of others. And what I mean is, He's not, he's not just doing it to sit there and collect the people. He's doing it in part to teach them. And that's part of the third sermon. The fourth sermon is going to be a sermon of encouragement. Again, on the same day as the third sermon, this fourth sermon is a very short one. It's, it's given directly to Zerubbabel, but boy, does it have an application for us as well. But it's directed directly to Zerubbabel, and it promises a future overthrow of the Gentile nation that were in Haggai's day, exercising sovereignty over Israel. So, again, these sermons are given in year 520. Haggai is going to give four, three, uh, actually two, and then two on the same day. Zechariah is going to be given a couple months after Haggai. So that's why we're going to study Zechariah next year. We'll go back to Ezra. But they, they prophesy in approximately 520 B.C. Now, Haggai's sermons are an interesting study, I think, for anybody that's going through needs to be a parent, a boss at work, a preacher proclaiming the Word of God. There's an interesting mixture of admonition and chastisement and then encouragement. Back and forth he goes. And I don't know how many of you have had been under certain leadership, whether military leadership or leadership in, in the business realm or maybe in a university setting or some sort of other setting, maybe even a church setting, where it was all negative. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. What an idiot you are. Let's, let's, you cannot do that. You do that one more time, I'm going to fire you. And never a kind word. And most people don't like to work under that environment. And then there are also certain leaders that are so afraid to chastise that nothing's going to get done. So good leadership often has to mix in, you know, a, a kick in the rear end with a pat on the back. And that's exactly what Haggai does in this book. In the first sermon, it's, it's essentially negative. The second sermon is, is essentially positive. It's aimed to encourage. The third, the third sermon that we'll study in just a moment, it's on the whole essentially negative. The last sentence is positive, but on the whole, it's, it's negative. And then the fourth sermon is, is on the whole positive. So I, I hope you see, the reason I drew a, a white line in between those was Haggai strikes a balance. And if you're preaching the entire counsel of God, you're going to strike a balance. That's why I love Jay Vernon. He's from the passage from Genesis to Revelation. We've got to finish this up, so I'm going to take that. Genesis to Revelation. There's going to be a balance there because you don't see things that way. And one of the difficulties of prophecy preaching is that you tend as a pastor, you tend to skip the areas that are most difficult to read. Or, I don't want to read too much into this, but sometimes pastors just lay into the things that they're the ones that they're having a particular 
I don't need coffee this morning. Okay, you're not going to do it because of that. That's one of my problems with this morning. You're not. Because I'm going through the entirety of the book, and we're going to cover every one of those subjects. And uh, and that's what Haggai does. So negative to positive, negative to positive, and there's a beautiful balance in Haggai. We're now in chapter 2, verse 10. He begins the third sermon. Let me just read the the sermon itself, and then I want to comment on it. The the third sermon runs from verses 10 to verse 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet of Jashua. He said in the first sermon, and the second one, I'll say it in this one too, the the prophecy of Haggai is the most specifically dated of all the Old Testament prophecies. He gives us very specific dates on four occasions in this sermon. And here's another one in verse 10. In verse 11, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruler. Interesting question. Ask now the priests for a ruler. The word's actually law in this one. Torah. Torah. Ask them for a Torah. Ask them for a ruler. And this is what they're going to ask. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with this fold or cooks food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? That's the question you want them to ask the priest. The priest will say, no, it won't become holy. Then verse 13, then Haggai said, if one who is unclean from a corpse, is unclean from a corpse, touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? Now, you're probably not going to make that law, but you can figure out the answer to the three yes. I said, yes, it will become holy. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people. And so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer, they will not do. But now consider from this day forward. This is the third major time this idea of considering has come up. Remember we saw the first lesson of verse 5, consider your ways. Verse 7, consider your ways. Now he does it again in the third sermon. But now consider from this day forward, or perhaps this day backward, I'll tell you why that is in this case in a minute. Before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to the grain heap of twenty measures, there would only be ten. And when one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there would only be twenty. I smote you, and every work of your hands with blasting winds. This is God speaking to you through trumpets. I smote you, and every work of your hands with blasting winds will be enhanced, yet you did not come up. Do consider, in verse 18, do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree? It has not borne fruit, yet from this day on, I will bless it. Now, that sermon, let's read you a verse of it, you have to figure it's potentially negative, all the way up until the last sentence. Now, by the time he gives that sermon, they've already started working on the temple again. Nevertheless, I hope you could see, even without me commenting there, that if something's not going right with their economy, God's not going to not. You, you misbehave for 16 years, say, oh, I confess that, and then you think things in the stock market's going to go to 14000 doesn't necessarily work that way. They needed to learn their lesson. So, again, we have this prophecy. If we try to transfer this to our calendar, and I know this is difficult, but people that have a great mind with computers and know all about these things have figured out that he gives this sermon on December 18, 599. Okay, it's phenomenal. It doesn't need to figure that out. But based upon the comparison of the two calendars, this is a sermon that's given in December. During the two months between sermon number 
two is sermon number two of Haggai, Zechariah is going to be the emphasis. Or what can be the emphasis of seven judges and trumpet judges. So I'll give you an opportunity to read that. Now here, it's an interesting rhetorical play with, with Haggai. And I've had this done to me growing up sometimes. My dad would call me in and say, hey, can you fork cut or something? Now first of all, when the word fork was used, I knew it wasn't probably going to be a real positive connotation. And he would have me answer a certain series of questions, all designed to pronounce my guilt. And then he was going to pronounce the punishment for the guilt. Hey, tell me something. And I, I learned about that for a while. And after a while, he would say, hey, listen. And then he would ask a question from the prior and yes, and I'd listen. And I'd say, I don't even remember that. Never got me out of any whoopings, but I felt better about it. Because I knew I wasn't going to walk down that road with him and, and just admit to the fact that I had done wrong. Tell me something. So I know how it feels to, to be done this, and that's what Haggai does. So he says, listen, I want you to go and ask the priests that are ruling on this. They're the ones that know all the intricacies of the law. Let's ask the priests about these two aspects of the law. Now, if a man carries holy meat, holy meat is meat that was set apart, what the word holy means, set apart for worship in the temple, in this case, worship on the altar. It was special consecrated meat. So if this priest carries holy meat in this garment that they have, they wouldn't hold it with their hands, but they'd hold it in this garment. And then, and by the way, that made, this is just something you know, great law, that made the garment holy. You carry holy meat in a garment, and that makes the garment holy. But, he said, if a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread, not the meat, but touches bread with the fold or cooks food or wine or oil or any other food, will it become holy? Now, the priest had to make a ruling here, but the priest knew the Mosaic law, and there's some specific aspects to the law that Leviticus about to look at. And he says, no, it's not going to make anything else holy. Actually, the meat made the garment holy. The garment's not going to make the meat holy. I know this is so foreign to us, but this is the ruling that, that they were asking the priest, or Haggai's asking the priest to make. Now, he's got a point in, in asking it. So, uh, this is a, a quick lesson of Mosaic law. Carry the meat. The meat made the garment holy, but if they put something else in there, it wouldn't make the bread holy. Right? Don't ask me why. That's the way God set it up in the Mosaic Law for, among other things, to make Israel a peculiar people unto himself. I'm sure he had purposes, and, and were we to take some more time to spend on that, we would get a good idea. Interesting looking up at Leviticus 6 and Numbers 6 that would answer that question. Also, Exodus 29 and uh, even Leviticus 24, if you're interested in looking at what the custom of the priests were like, given this custom of holy. So he said, okay, let me ask you another thing. Let me ask you a second question. If someone who has become unclean, for example, by cutting his cord, that was one of the things that made them ceremonially unclean. Uh, if they end up touching food, would that then make the food unclean? Yes. Now that, that was a little easier for us to figure out. Uh, so he says, okay, glad, glad, I'm glad I got your attention. I'm glad you got these two rulings. And so then Haggai makes an application. This is going to be easier than the two that we've discussed so far. He's going to make an application based upon these two rulings. What he's saying to them is that their sacrifices to God were unacceptable because they were unclean. The sacrifices were unacceptable because they themselves were unclean. They shouldn't think that contact with something holy. Remember the question, if I, if I contact that garment that's been made holy by the bread, will that make the other things holy? No, it's not going to do it. So they shouldn't think that contact, this contact or interaction with something that's holy, such as the temple that they're working with the priests, would then make them acceptable to God. 
hope your mind is racing ahead because you can probably see what had to go in there. They'd previously been unclean. Actually, they'd been unclean for most of 16 years. So the presence of sacrifice, the evidence that they're making to rebuild the temple, isn't going to do them any good. They are, they are an unclean person. We would say in New Testament terminology, they're walking out of fellowship with God and trying to be better. They're walking out of fellowship with God, yet they think they're worth it. And Haggai's saying, it doesn't work that way. You can, you can enter, let me put it in more New Testament terms. There's a lot of people do this. I'm not saying a lot of people in our church. I hope nobody in our church does it, but I know church-wide a lot of people do this. Some people go to church just because it's fun to do, and they feel like just going to the building somehow makes them holy. That's why some people love building lands, and they really are, because just going there, sitting down in that building, somehow makes them holy before God. In the same way these, these Jewish returnees were going into the temple, doing much with it, but they at least started, they started back working, and, and God's saying, listen, just association with a building, or even God's work, is not necessarily going to make you holy. And what he's emphasizing to these people who actually had done some repenting by this time, he's saying, if you really want to do it right, you turn away from your sin, you repent, you walk in fellowship, and then you do it. But when we attempt to serve God, walking consistently out of fellowship with Him, God doesn't accept that sacrifice. So when we get to verse 15, and, and, the, and the text tells us, Haggai says, now consider from this day onward. He wants them to consider. And actually the text gives us the idea is, I want you to think about it. This day, I'm speaking to you right now, think all the way back over the last 16 years. I want you to think back. Now this morning we said you won't want to dwell thinking back, but here's this one time where he says, I want you to think backwards. Back to the time that the, the, the work on the temple started back. And I want you to see where has this, again, to use a New Testament term, where has this come out of your life? It's, it's not getting you what you want. In fact, it's, it's never getting you what you want. You think it will have an effect. That's what this thing is about. You think that doing what you want to do above what God wants to do is going to get you to where you want to be. And that guy says, no. If you want to be happy, if you want contentment in life, then you do things God's way with His priorities. Remember the first sermon, misplaced priorities. Do things under His priorities and do them while you're walking in fellowship with God. And things will go well. So just because you're associated with a good work, this is going to catch a lot. This net will catch a lot of Christian service, unfortunately. Because a lot of Christian service is conformed to Christian standards. So the pastor's going to take good efforts. <laughs> the, uh, you know, somebody say, well, I'm going to teach that Sunday school class for the, the pastor or the seaman or for the Sunday school leader or the singer, so I'm not getting out of boy or out of girl. You know, there's so many people that do so many things uh, to put others ahead of us that nobody ever thinks and they keep doing it and they think quietly. And it's come to the more public and, and people know about it. But you know, who really matters? Serving him, it shouldn't be Christ. If our motivation is unselfish, it's God and it's good news. Even if you don't get that right away or that right quick. And believe me, I, I, I try. I guess I am sometimes I mess up. But if you, get just, if you find yourself just getting enormously angry and offended because the pastor or the Sunday school leader or whatever the rest of the elders or whatever come and tell you, hey, that was really great that you served today, something's wrong. 
Hashem told him over there. So just because you serve in our Mishkan Aleph, just because you serve in our Mishkan Aleph, doesn't mean you're not supposed to be there. And you can't even bother. But uh, <laughs> let's further. Uh, and just because you may be the first doesn't make you holy. There are people that can get up in a seminary class and do a phenomenal job that they're very familiar with the Torah. And just because you come in contact with that holy material doesn't make you holy. We all need to protect ourselves before we get up and teach or teach or serve or or mess or serve in a Sunday school capacity, play play the organ, sing, no matter what it is. Make the call. Bring your donut. We all need to make sure we're washing our hands. Why? So that we're we're bringing an acceptable sacrifice. Then it won't hurt. And then won't God do wonderful things? Present yourself, yeah, your own body, to you first. And that's really what happened here. Why not do that? You first. Because he could make a rock into a better creature than anybody in this town. He really could, if he wanted to. But he doesn't need anybody. Our service is something that we should be feel privileged to do. And so anyway, that's uh, that's one of the things that Haggai is, is speaking of here. They needed to remember that before they will be really going very far in their newfound obedience to the Lord, they need they need to realize that they can't just become sinners just simply by doing the right thing. And you get your heart right with God, and then you get the right thing. You don't do the work, you can turn back and become sinners. You see that? When you get your heart right there, things are easy. Don't think, well, I'm missing something. Just go ahead and get your heart right. Just be sure. You don't want to get the cart before the horse. Now, he does He does uh, let us know in verse 16 quickly that the economic oppression is here. We see that at that particular time, from that time when one came to a grain heap of honeymaking, they would not pay. Uh, we took that in the stock market thing. That's, that's a stock market that Started at fourteen thousand in Dow, and then you come in and they can start at seven thousand. Some of them can even break the seven commercial stocks. That's what happened here, and they had just a monumental drop. And it wasn't too much better when it came to the wine vat. They they came to draw a fifty measure, and they drank a twenty. I can't give you half of those what that vat went under, but that's not a very that's not a very good percentage either. That's a pretty serious loss as well. So all this sixteen years. They've been disciplined for that. And some of that discipline is overflowing into this particular time when they have started to worship the Lord. But God wants to make sure that we've done what's fair and right. Don't just don't just think you're getting rid of this discipline by doing it. And don't think you're serving them just by just by putting a brick on their foot. You need to come with intelligence and then they'll come with their foot. So there's there's a, a economic depression and we see it from an from an agricultural standpoint. God will bless his people for their obedience. But sometimes he's not going to erase the previous punishment for the previous sins if they have. So they're going to remain in this economic depression for just a little bit of time. In fact, in the short run, that's a good thing too, so they don't hurt themselves Now the fourth point, let me just close with this. It won't take very long. The fourth point is a fairly short one. It was verses 20 through 23. And as I said before, it's given on the same day as the first one. Uh, it's given to a specific person. Previous sermons were given to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people. This sermon is given just to Zerubbabel. Now, this is this is important. 
because otherwise the sermon's not going to make sense if we, if we don't realize he's given to Zerubbabel, who is in the Davidic line. Zerubbabel is in the, the Davidic line of kings. He's not a king. He's a governor. But he's, he's in that line. So that's, and if we understand that, this sermon is going to make more sense. It's short, and this is one of those ones that's encouraging. This is it's going to end up on a positive note. And again, if you ever are in, in ministry and you want to, to kind of plan out your expositions, you're going to have to do something where you're really for God, speaking for God, chastising a group or or you know, a group of pastors or Sunday school class, whatever. It would be a really good idea to finish with these verses. Not even write a fifth of them, but see if it works that way out in the scriptures that you're going to use. Because sometimes it doesn't go that way. Most of the time it goes. Verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came the second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the same, the same day. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow, overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and the riders will go down, everyone by the sword, declares the Lord. 20, verse 23, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And so ends this prophecy. Now, what in the world, what in the world is happening here? Well, first, he tells Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the governor. So he's the political leader. Joshua or Yeshua is the priest. This is specifically to the man who's in the line of David, the governor, the political ruler, that there's going to come a time that I'm going to throw off this Gentile yoke of oppression. But remember, ever since the time of 586 B.C., when Jerusalem finally fell, all the way to the second advent, that's the period of time that we've studied before called the times of the Gentiles. Exactly. And you remember the times of the Gentiles is not equivalent to the church age, but overlaps with the church age. But they are not synonymous terms. The times of the Gentiles is that period of human history where there is no king of Davidic descent sitting on the throne of David and Israel. And that includes this. Now, if you're, again, if you're thinking ahead, you're probably already starting to, to scratch a little bit and wonder what's going on here because it appears that he's promising Rubble that he's going to be and it's not quite so easy. But in verses 22 and 23, oh, sorry, 21 and 22, this Gentile oppression is going to come to an end. Now, don't you think that that would be an encouragement to someone who's been a political leader to know that there is hope, there is a future for people? Don't despair. It would be an encouragement to me to know that there is, that there's some hope for the future. I can't. Sometimes people are taking those subways. They suggest it twice now. I've had to dodge people when they have run through those stops. And one time, if I wasn't in Cindy's little Volkswagen bug of all things, and I hate driving that car, but it would get out of the way real fast. I had to drop the clutch and pop it out of the way, but, or I would have been smashed like a chainsaw. But I, you know, my heart raced a little bit afterwards, but I thought, well, okay, something would have happened, and I would have been in heaven with the Lord at least. But I can't imagine what it would be like to 
present by Mr. Purdy. He knows his Greeks. He knows his Romans. And even to this day, there is no Davidic king sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. There really is no king in Jerusalem. So this final oracle is to the house of King Jehoiakim. A descendant of King Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, would be God's agent in that day. He would come from Zerubbabel's descendants, and it would be similar to Zerubbabel in that he would be a political leader of God's people. And we know this is the will of God now through Jehoiakim, his coming to Jerusalem. This kind of message would have encouraged him. He needed a protector. It also would encourage those who were working with him in some respects to realize that they're working for God that there is a purpose for Jerusalem, that Christ is coming. And when he comes again, he's going to make all things right. Even though we've failed, Israel has failed. Even though Israel has failed, there is a future for them. And this is one of those things that was related to in John's Jerusalem, the apocalypse, the call of the resurrection. And though everything he says in that book was right, he himself would go away. That's how we'll end this prophecy and the book of Jehoiakim. And we'll be back with Brother Andrew Stokes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the first advent and the fourth coming. We thank you for your prophecy of Haggai Grace, those who knew the Lord and the fourth coming. Given to a different people, thank you. There certainly is an overflow application to us as a church. In terms of our own behavior tonight, Father, I do pray that when we come to worship, we will come walking in your ways. Serving, we will do so walking in faith, not in sight, so that our acceptable service sacrifices to you might be acceptable. And may we always remember that the first thing will not be last. Not our money, not our talents, not our effort, excuse me, us, but you. Help us to do that for the glory of your name and the glory of the Holy Spirit. 